give a little moment of silence here this morning. And when you go to a ball game or a, a basketball, you'll, you'll see it today on the NFL. You see it in the NBA all week, even the college basketball games. They, they do what's called a moment of silence. Um, and if you've ever been to one of those games when they do a moment of silence like that, it's awkward, isn't it? Like it's a loud, huge place. Everybody's screaming, and then the announcer goes on, now we're going to have a moment of silence. And it, there's this dead quiet, and everybody, do we pray? Do we look at each other? Do we just be quiet? I mean, what is a moment of silence? And truthfully, if you're a Christian and you believe that the creator of the universe is in charge and is in, a daily, is in the business of daily walking with you, then a moment of silence from you is not quiet. It may be quiet on the outside, but inside you're going, God, on behalf of this family, on behalf of my friends, on behalf of Sonny, on behalf of that family, God, I am I'm praying that you, you make your, your presence be known let this community feel peace. So that's what, that's what our job is as Christians, as people who are close to God. When somebody says moment of silence, it may be silent on the outside, but it's loud inside. It's not silent. And so this morning, we're going to be quiet on the outside, but on the inside today, especially if you're a follower of Jesus and you have seen him move in our community, would you pray for these families this morning and ask God to bring peace in these situations? God, on behalf of people we don't even know, halfway across our country, we pray that even as we speak right now, even as we sit here and from our hearts, and from our minds, that those who are in Connecticut, families as they get up this morning, as some of them worship, as they grieve, God, that you would, in a supernatural way, in a way that is unmistakably from you, that you would bring peace to those families. There's no fixing this. No amount of punishment can make it feel better. No amount of crying can change it. Truthfully, God, we know the only hope for peace in this situation comes from the one who designed peace and who has promised it to us. So would you give it to them. And we believe right here in this space that even as we speak, you can do that wherever they are. God, we pray for Sonny's family wherever they sit this morning. That those in the family that are close to you, that they would be able to tap into the peace that you've promised passes all understanding. And those that aren't begin to feel something different that can only come from you. And Father, would you guide us? Would you move us? The truth is, this story in the Old Testament, the stuff that we're reading right now is disturbing. It's hard. At times it feels weird and gross and scary. At times we think just as we feel like we understand who you are, something happens and we go, well, that doesn't seem right. And so God, would you just make it clear today to us that the most important things... Would you speak into our lives? Would you change who we are because of your presence? And we'll open our hearts in your son's name. Amen.
I prayed that this morning, and, and if, you're, if you've been following me on Facebook or we've been talking about the Bible um, and this story um, together, you've heard me say this. I'm disturbed by some of the things I read in the Bible. I just am. And uh, I've said things like this before, and the elders have never fired me. I'm going to say it again. There are times when I just, uh, I, I, I think I've got God figured out. Like, I know who God is. And then something happens in the story, and it doesn't fit the picture that I've painted of God. You know what I'm saying? I know that some of you know what I'm saying, because I'll get a Facebook message and go, what? Exclamation point, exclamation. That's what Pam's is always, exclamation points. Exclamation, 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 capitals all over the place. Um, Some of you are just going, this does not sound like God. Going into towns of people, cities of people, destroying, and the Bible says it this way, being very clear, destroying everything that breathes in in a city. That's, that, that's not the picture I have painted of God. And, and further, what God does in this story is he surprises us constantly. You know, one of the things that I hate about the, the movies that Rishas watches this time of year, it's from the Hallmark Channel. Anybody watch the Christmas movies on the Hallmark Channel? Blah! You know why I hate these movies? She watched, she watched one last night starring Joey Lawrence. Remember him? Whoa! Remember that guy? Yeah. Too much makeup, terrible production, and here's what I hate about those stories. And Risha says, I have to sit and be really quiet because there's nothing she hates more than me going, Pfft, right when they're, you know, they're kissing each other or there's some emotional scene. And I go, yeah, right. She hates that. She'll go, go up and watch the game if you're not going to. So I have to be real quiet. But the thing I hate most about it, and I was figuring this out this week, the thing I hate most about those movies is that in the first 10 minutes, I know exactly what's going to happen. Joey Lawrence is going to meet somebody, they're not going to like each other at first, then they're going to really like each other, and it's going to be awesome, and it's going to seem like it should be it, and then you look at the clock and go, but there's an hour left, something bad happens, something misunderstanding, we're never going to see each other, sad music, cue, all by myself, and then back together, they come, and... And they come, and they meet in a dark alley, and the snow comes down, and they kiss, and she says, I'll never live another day of my life, and the credits roll. It's the same movie. I hope Risha doesn't listen to this. She won't listen to my sermon. It's okay. Yeah. It's the same story. And here's what I hate about these. You know what I love about movies? What I love about movies and television shows, for that matter, is when something, the, the show starts, and you think you got it, and then all of a sudden, there's what we call a twist. Something happens that's unexpected. There's a change. There's a, there's a, an unexpected plot twist or a character does something and you go, whoa, that's not who I thought that was. That's what I love about movies. I like the reality. Now, what Risha says to me, and I get this too, she says, I- I'll say, you know what I don't like about them is that they're just not real. Nothing actually happens like that. And Risha goes, exactly. I have enough reality with my kids day in and day out. I want to get away. We just feel differently about movies. I want a movie that makes me feel like it's real. She wants a movie that makes her feel like i got to get out of my life and out of real and get into... But part of the reason I love the story, and it's so compelling in the way we're reading it this time, is that you can start at the beginning and go, oh, i got God figured out. i got God figured out. Here's what's going to happen. He's going to make people, they were supposed to be good, they were bad. He's going to forgive them all, he'll be light and fluffy, and it'll all be good. And then all of a sudden, God goes into a city and starts raining snakes on people and killing everybody. And i got to tell you, one thing it does to me as a believer in Jesus and, and a follower of God is it makes me go, wow, God's scary. 
And then the other thing it makes me do is go, i got to read on. Because if he can make that big a change, what else is there? And i got to tell you, I've read this a whole bunch. And I've, I've read the Bible in a lot of different ways. I've never read it like we're reading it right now. In chronological order, one thing after another. And one thing I've noticed about God is that there is this rhythm and flow to who God is. There is this part of God that is what the Bible calls holy. And that sounds like a churchy word, but it is a really important word in the way it was initially meant. And the word holy means set apart. It means different from humans. It means different from the rest of creation. What it means is is that God himself cannot be in the midst of something that isn't good, isn't right, isn't whole, isn't perfect. It's just his nature. His nature won't allow him to be in those midst. So we see that part of God. And then the other part we see of God is this father who desperately loves broken, stupid idiots who just continue to make the same mistakes over and over again. And so the whole story in life and the whole story of the Bible is about God raising up and and showing everybody that uh, he's set apart, that he's different, that there is nothing else like him, that he started everything. And then two chapters later, that same power gets, gets juxtaposed to I'm gonna, even though I can't take being with somebody who is messed up, I'm going to figure out a way to have grace. So we see it on and off throughout the whole story. And it's that tension that we're experiencing right now in our world. This, this experience, it's an amazing thing to me where I can stand on the stage with a heavy heart. Somebody came up to me and said, before I came up on stage, Reba came up and said, could we have a moment of silence this morning for the people in Connecticut? And immediately I went, oh, that same gut punch that I felt that day, that first day when I found it out, it was like just, oh yeah, we need to do that. And that weight comes. And I stood up to here up on stage and Carter crawled up the stage. And I looked into the eyes of a little guy who is the picture of God's grace. A family who has loved this little dude. I mean, I was, he was singing during worship and the whole family's looking at him and clapping for him. And I said, you know what this kid needs is some attention, you know? <laughs> What a loved little boy. And he walks up on stage and he's got this huge smile. And you see this juxtaposition of the awfulness and the brokenness of being far from God and the grace, the hope, the peace, the joy that God promises. If you're here today and you've been reading the the Bible, you've been reading the story and you go, this is ridiculous, you're reading the right book. Okay? It is. It's ridiculous. It's hard. It's frustrating. At times, you look at the Bible and you read a story and you go, that God scares me to death. And the writer goes, good. (laughs) And then you get three chapters later and you go, that God moves me to tears. And the writer goes, good. And you get this tension in your life. If you're feeling that, you're reading the right book, okay? If you're, if you're here this morning and the Bible that you celebrate is cheesy Disney stories of really smart, good heroes, and Samson has always got a big chest and long, beautiful, flowing hair, and Jesus always has blue eyes and looks like he could be carrying a surfboard, if that's your Bible, you're reading the wrong book, okay? Because that's not the story that we're following. I got to let you know one right now that um, this time of year I absolutely love Christmas, and when I had kids, it just exploded. I loved it even more. Something about Christmas, I love the whole feeling. People on Facebook, we were just talking about before some people on Facebook who are really uh, conservative Christians. Some people don't like Christmas, and so I try to be sensitive to that. But here's the thing: I just love Christmas. 
I don't see anything bad about it. If, as long as we keep in check all the things, I just love celebrating. I love the joy and the peace that comes with it. And I love the story of Jesus. And I, as, I, as I've been thinking about the story and the way that we're going through this series, I think I, I'm not supposed to take a Christmas sermon until next week. But this, the story, the, the chapter 7 of the book, fits so well with the Christmas story. I want to start with it today. And if you've ever read the Christmas story, you've probably started in Luke chapter 2. Right now, my daughter's in first grade. She's memorizing the entire chapter of Luke chapter 2. She's got the, almost the whole thing memorized. You'll see it because I'm going to shoot it on video. And I'm going to bring it in here and play it. And you're all going to cry, I promise you. It's incredible. And her teacher's saying, I want you to, hear the, here's what it means. I'm not, I just want you to memorize it. That's incredible. And she's memorized the entire, and she's going, those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. And like, do you know what a decree is? And she'll tell me what a decree. What's a census? Uh, who's Caesar Augustus? She knows all of it. Not only has she memorized it, but she's internalized this thing. And it's an amazing thing. We start with Luke chapter 2. When I was a kid, that's what you learn. You, you start with Mary and Joseph and the whole thing. The story actually starts... Matthew's version starts before Jesus. It starts before Mary and Joseph. Matthew is talking to a group of people, and he says, I want to tell you the Christmas story. Now, he didn't call it Christmas. They weren't celebrating Christmas at that point yet. He said, I want to tell you a story, and Matthew knows he's getting ready to tell the greatest story ever told. And he starts at the beginning. And many of you skip skip over this, and I don't blame you if you do, because I'm about to butcher a whole bunch of names. But Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, is the beginning of, of the Christmas story. And it starts like this. The family tree of Jesus Christ, David's son, Abraham's son. Now this is really important because, because Matthew is speaking to a Jewish culture. And here's the thing about the Jews. They're waiting for what they call the Messiah. The Messiah is the Savior. It's a person that God is going to be sending to earth to save everybody once and for good. And they believe it's coming soon. They believe the Messiah is coming soon. And Matthew is saying the Messiah has come. Now, one of the things the Jews believe about the Messiah is that he will be in the line, in lineage, he will be in the family of King David, okay? The Bible says it, the Old Testament says it, and the Jews believe that they should be looking for somebody who is probably pretty kingly, you know, pretty royal, pretty pretty well off financially at the high class of society. Because if you're God, wouldn't you send somebody, you know, maybe into a castle in London somewhere if you were sending Jesus? So everybody's expecting a big castle. They're expecting a king. They're expecting all this stuff. And Matthew says, i got to prove to these people that Jesus is the Messiah. That it's not just a good story. And so he starts by saying, this Jesus comes from the line of David. And when he does, he starts by saying, this is the family tree of Jesus. And it immediately triggered to me that about three or four years ago, I got really excited about family tree. There is a site on the web called Ancestry.com. Anybody? Have you fallen into this trap? No. Uh-huh. It's free. It's like crack. First one's free, you know, and it's addicting. It really is. It's crazy. And you get, the, you get in, and they get you addicted, and then they go, hey, there's somebody really famous in your, in your lineage. Click here to find out who, and you click on it. For $9.95 a month, you can be a part of the club so that you can find out who that is. I totally bought into it, you know, and didn't get permission from my wife, and that was a conversation when the mail came, you know. So, uh, Ancestry.com, I got really excited about it. I started talking to my grandma. I started talking to my aunt. I talked to all these people. I started gathering names. Everybody was excited. John's going to find this out. And the reason I wanted to is because I thought it would be really cool to find out I'm, like, connected to Abraham Lincoln, you know, I'm like, or I'm connected to some really cool, famous person somewhere down the line, and it'll change my life completely, and I'll be so connected to these people. And what I realized was 
there's a bunch of slubs in my life. I mean, my family tree forks six or eight times. It's a mess, the people that are in my life. I quickly quit Ancestry.com. Got billed for about three months after it, but I quit looking at it. Because everybody that comes up is like, well, that guy's a mess. I don't even want anybody to know about that one. In fact, there's a guy on my family tree I went and asked my dad about. I said, Dad, who's this guy? And he goes, oh, let me tell you about this guy. He said, this guy's such a mess. He's been wanted in like six states, um, including Indiana. His parents one time um, had uh, asked him to come and watch their house for him when they went on vacation, and they had a nice property with a lot of trees. He sold all their trees while they were gone. Sold them. <laughs> had a timber sale while they were gone. They came home to no trees. <laughs> and they said, where are the trees? Oh, well, I don't know. They were here when I left. You know, Sold all their trees. This is the kind of guy. He came to my dad's house one time, pulled up the driveway. His van's all dented in. And my dad said, oh, what happened to your van? He said, oh, I hit a deer. Dad said, you hit a deer? He said, yeah, I chased him through three fields before I finally got him. <laughs> that sounds like Bud. But yeah, that's the kind of people that are in my family tree. You know what I'm saying? So I quit looking. I just quit looking, you know? And here's what I realized, that, that, that the family tree is a scary thing to start digging into, you know? Because it, you think you're going to start digging up kings, but you dig up people who chase deer through fields. You just do. That's who we are. It's pretty crazy. And so here's what Matthew does. I love this. Matthew goes, listen, the Messiah, the one you're looking for has come. And let me prove it because he's in the line of David. But then he throws in some people. And if I were going to list the people in my lineage, I would list my grandpa. He's a good, he was a good man. I would list his grandpa, who was a good man. I would list my great-grandmother's grandfather. See, I told you I've been doing this. He was a good man. I would list some people, and then I would skip some people, <laughs> really intentionally. If you said, John, who's in your lineage? I'd list something. Matthew lists somebody in this list that you don't realize unless you've been reading the book, the story. And if you have, you're going to know exactly the connection I've got here. I'm going to just read it, and let me just only tell you, I'm going to butcher these names, okay? The family tree of Jesus, David's son, Abraham's son. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Judah and his brothers. Judah had Perez and Zerah. Their mother was Tamar. Perez had Hezron. Hezron had Aram. I hope you're taking notes because we're going to have a test. Aram had Aminadab. Aminadab had Nashon. Nashon had, they call him Salmon, even though it looks like salmon to us. Salmon had Boaz, which is kind of a cool name. And here's the name I want you to remember. And if you read this week in the story, you'll know this name already. Salmon had Boaz, and then Matthew goes, his mother was, you see that name? Rahab. His mother was Rahab. Boaz had Obed, Ruth was his mother. Obed had Jesse, Jesse had David, and David became king. So basically he's proven to the Jews Jesus comes from the line of David. But in this, he puts this little line, his mother was Rahab. Now, everybody that Matthew was listening to, now, I said the name Rahab, and you all went, I think I, I, think I dated a girl in high school named Rahab in the 60s or something. But I'll tell you, for the Jews, they would have heard the name Rahab and gone, ooh, that's a name we don't want to hear. You know, who, you know why? Because they all know the story of Rahab. And you know what Rahab was? Rahab had a label. You know, you know people with labels? You know people with labels? I had a friend in high school, Chris the Liar. You know, we didn't call him Chris the Liar, but when you said Chris, everybody went, ooh, he's a liar. We had 
girl in high school, I won't say her name because she's still around, that everybody knew, you say, you, when you say her name, everybody goes, yeah, we know what she's known for, <laughs> you know? Uh, name, person after person after person after person. They have labels. Maybe you have a label. Ro- Rahab had a label. In fact, the Bible calls her, <laughs> this is a label, the Bible calls her Rahab the prostitute. That's her name. It's like Winnie the Pooh, right? It's like, hey, I've got some labels here. John the Baptist, right? Alexander the Great. That would be an awesome label, wouldn't it? Attila the Hun, you got it. Buffy the Yeah, no, no. Jabba the Yeah. And Rahab the harlot. Or in, in our terms, Rahab the prostitute. And the people then, the Jews would have gone, why'd you have to bring her up? And this Jesus can't be connected with a prostitute. Here's the thing. She wasn't just a prostitute. She was a famous prostitute. She was well-known. She had a big label on her. Everybody knew who she was. And she was the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. It's awesome. It's amazing. And I want to tell you the story this morning. If you didn't read this, you need to go home and read it. It's an awesome thing. And it is a weird twist in the story of God, this woman. Okay, next slide. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. This, this gets us into our story this week. If you haven't been reading this or if you've kind of read it a while back, here's the thing. The Israelites are God's people. They've been chosen by God, um, not because they're good. In fact, they're really bad and they're dumb and they make a lot of stupid mistakes and they do the same thing over and over again. And we've been reading it and many of us have been going, yep, that's me. I do the same thing. And they do things sometimes the way God wants them to, but often they, they, God will perform a big miracle and they go, yes, this is it. And then two days later they go, I forgot about that and now I want more, God. And they just constantly are testing God. And God does some pretty um, scary things with them. And we've, we've kind of equated the way God deals with the Israelites, the way that we deal with our kids. I remember um, when I was a kid, I, I, my dad was pretty firm with me. Um, and I, I, he never really punished me too hard, but I remember there were a couple times when he got pretty harsh and he yelled. I've not heard my dad yell since I was in about third grade. And um, we were talking about it not that long ago, and I said, Dad, I remember some rules that you had. And I remember some things, and I think, man, my dad has really changed. My dad has really changed in the way he did. He's so much softer now, and he'll cry at a Hallmark movie. He loves him with Risha. He watches him all the time. He, he is so soft, and he's not that same guy. He doesn't seem as harsh. He doesn't seem... I said, Dad, you just really changed. And he said, no, I haven't. You have. When you were in third grade, you needed me to be a harsh, rule-making dad. Now, you make your own rules. I just love your kids. I don't have to make their rules. <laughs> and he's right. When I was in kindergarten, when I was in first grade, when I was, these are formative years. My dad better make some rules and he better hold them and there better be some consequences, harsh consequences, bad consequences for messing up. But by the time John's 25 years old, he's got his own family and he's living in his own house, dad can change. And I want you to know that part of what you're seeing with God is the very beginning of an entire community, an entire culture, God's people. They are infants. <laughs> they are young, and God is setting rules for them. And when they disobey the rules, there are drastic consequences for them. They're standing outside 
of a promise that God has given them. They said, now you guys have been roaming around for a long time. You're going to get this land over here, and you're, you're going to get to have this land. And it's, they called it flowing with milk and honey. It had everything they needed to be happy, to be fat, and to live like they would like to live. They were going to have their own place. They wouldn't have to drift around in the, in the desert all the time. They were so excited, and they came to a place called Jericho, and they were going to take it over. God said, this is your city. And they begin to look at it and they go, well, that's funny because there's some people living in it. (laughs) And they're big. (laughs) And they're strong. And God says, I'll go before you. I'll take this city. Now, at this point, these people that were living in Jericho were far, far from God. They were broken people. They were living atrocious lives, scary lives. So bad that people sometimes say, I don't know how much more God can take of our community and our culture you know, God can't take any more. This is just the worst in history that, our, that the world has ever been. I'm going, you haven't read the Bible, haven't you? I mean, things are bad in our world right now, and they, a lot of things displease God. But, man, the Old Testament, there were some bad places. And this was one of them. And right on the edge of this, cities at this time in history, they would build this big wall. And you still see this. They'd build this huge wall around their entire city with a big gate. And every night, they would close it and lock it up. they have a curfew. And if you're outside the gate, just like in college in my dorm room, if you're outside the d- gate after curfew, the door's shut, you're camping tonight. <laughs> you're not getting back in. You can't knock on the door and come in. It's closed. Well, the, 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 uh, the kind of the heroine of our story this week, um, Rahab, lived on the wall. Somehow her house was connected to the wall of the city. Her window connected to the wall. And she lived right there on the wall. And what happened was Joshua, who has taken over, we know that that Moses has died now, and Joshua has taken over and he says, I need to send two spies into the city to see what they've got because we're going to have a battle. I need to send two spies into the city. So they go into the city and as they sneak into the city, two of the government officials see them. And recognize them as spies. They know immediately that they're spies. And at this point in history, the Jewish people looked a whole lot different than everybody else. And when you see Israelites at this point in history, you would go, they don't belong here. <laughs> they don't look like us. And so these, these government officials went directly to the king and said, there are two spies from Israel in this place. Now at this point in history, all the kings around know what Israel is. The, Israel has been walking into cities and just, it's obvious, God has raised up and pushed people out, and God has destroyed city after city after city, and the Israelites have come in. So the kings all around, they know who Joshua is. They know who these people are, and it scares them to death that they'll be spies in the city. So the king says, go find these two men. Find them and bring them to me. So the, the, the officials from the city go look for the two spies sent out from Israel, and they duck in to a harlot's house. That's a pretty shady place to be seen if you're an Israelite. But they walk, they go into this house, and Rahab sees an opportunity. Rahab is one of my favorite people in the Bible. Now, I know that sounds weird, and I probably wouldn't name my daughter Rahab, okay? But I love what she does. I love her faith. And I I don't know about her life. I know that there are things in it that are broken and far from God and regrets that she has in the lifestyle. And part of the reason I think I love her story is because I know a lot of people like that myself. And I are one. And I see this woman save the day. She, puts the, she brings the spies into her house. And the government officials see her. 
See, they see them come into the house. She hides them. The Bible actually tells us how she hides them on the roof under some things. And the people come. They knock on her door, which is funny. You don't actually ever break through the door of a harlot's house. You don't ever just come in. You knock on the door. She comes to the door, and she says, they say, uh, where are the two men, the spies? And she says, oh, I'm glad you're here. You know, if you've read the story, she goes, here's the thing. They just, it was like the old Bugs Bunny cartoon. They went that way, you know. That's what she said. They went that way. They went outside the gates. So the, the government officials took off outside the gates looking for these two spies, and she went up to the roof. Look at this. Before the spies laid down for the night, she basically said, you're going to stay here in this place until, until it cools down a little bit. And here's what she says. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, listen to this, this is amazing. I know that the Lord has given this land to you. And that a great fear of you has fallen on us. So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Now, if you look at what she says, I know that the Lord, that capital L there, that's a word in her language and in in the spies' language that um, very few Hebrews, very few Israelites would ever say. It was written a lot, but it was very seldom said. What it means is this. It means that there are a lot of gods out there. There are a lot of people who believe a lot of things. But we all know there is one God somewhere that created all of it. Basically what this means, this word means is the always existing. That's the way it translates in English. When she uses this word, the spies go, oh, we have a believer. We have somebody who believes. You know what I love about this whole series? Is that this is a woman who has extraordinary faith and is outside of the religious community. She's outside of the Israelites. She is as far from being who God asked these people to be as she can be, and she has faith. It's amazing. She says, I know who God is. I know that he's given you these battles. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water. She uses that word Lord again. And the, the, the spies would have gone, ooh, don't say that word. We only write that word. That's too scary for us to actually say. So every time she says it, the spies would go, oh, you know, don't, don't use that. It, she keeps saying it to say, I, I, I believe. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did in Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan who you completely destroyed, when we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, look at this, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord. And when she says swear to me by the Lord, what she means is this Lord that I know is there, that I have faith in, and the Lord that you have faith in. These spies would have gone, what did this prostitute say? What was that? That we're going to swear by this, we're going to agree, we're going to spit handshake on the same thing? She says, yeah, swear to me by this Lord. Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. And one of the spies says, our lives for your lives. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through a window, because remember she was on the gate. 
For the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return. This is the woman who became part of Jewish culture, Jewish history. They still tell the story of Rahab, and God uses this prostitute. Next slide. i got to get moving. Here's one of the things. Here's the three things I love about Rahab in this story, that she has a label. Everybody knows, who's, knows who she is. I, I love that she has a family, and this family drives her to do what's right. Many of you in this place, that's why you came to church, isn't it? Because of the kids, because of the grandkids, because I can't let them do the stupid things I did, you know? It's what caused you. It's what happened to her. And then she has this developed faith. It's an amazing thing. So here's what happens. Next slide. If you read this week, you know the story. Joshua um, gathers the people, and there's this weird battle about to ensue. Really strange. Normally, you would just see the Israelites take over land. But instead, Joshua says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some trumpets, and we're just going to walk around the walls of this place the first day. So that's what they do. They get some trumpets. Can you imagine if you're part of the city? You know the Israelites take over cities. You know that they're scary people, that God is on their side, and that your city's about to go under. And you wake up in the morning, and you hear trumpets playing, and you see people walking. And the, the, the military people are going, what is this, a parade? I mean, what are we doing here? And they walk around. For seven days, they get up in the morning, they walk around, and they play their trumpets. And on the seventh day, Joshua says, here's what the Lord wants us to do. We're going to walk around the walls of this place, and when I tell you, don't do it until I tell you, we're going to shout. Now, I don't know what they shouted. I don't know what they did. But here's what some experts believe that what happened at that point. They walked around the entire walls of the building seven times. Now, at this point in history, there were somewhere around two million Israelites, maybe more than that. I don't know how many of them were in battle, but there were plenty, let me tell you. And there were a ton of people walking around the wall of this place. Some experts believe that what happened was, as they walked around, they loosened the foundation around the wall. Isn't that cool? They actually loosened, and this was a tactic that other battles uh, used later in, in history, but they would walk around and they loosened the foundation of those walls, and they played the trumpets, and then Joshua says, it's time to shout. And I don't know what they shouted, I don't know if they had some sort of a cheer or whatever they did, but they yelled, and when they did, all the walls in the city came down. Can you imagine living like living in the city, you have these walls your whole life. Your grandpa had these walls. Everybody had these walls. You're all safe. And you wake up one morning, and it's just gone. <laughs> you got nothing. And the Israelites take over everything. And this is where Joshua keeps his promise. This next slide. Joshua chapter 6, verse 20. When the trumpets sounded, the people shouted. Oh, one more slide. I'm sorry. I skipped that one. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house. He's still calling her the prostitute. She still has a label. She's helped them win the battle, and she still has a label. And bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with her, own, her oath to her. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when I go see a movie that I really like, um, I, I worry the whole time that somebody's going to get killed, you know, that somebody I really like. Because one of the trends in movies, to, to put a twist on it, is to get you to really like somebody and then just slit their throat, you know, and you go, <gasps> You know, I hate it. I hate that when it happens in a movie, but I also still keep watching. You know, it's, it's, it's a tactic. And so there's a part of me, when I read this for the first time, I'm like, oh, no. Joshua was going to bring the prostitute out, and it's gonna, she's going to end up on a pole. It's going to be awful. It's going to be a terrible thing. So he brings her out, and I'm thinking, oh, no, what's going to happen? So the young men who had done the spying went in, and they brought out Rahab, her father and her mother and her brothers, and all who belonged to her. 
They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, still calling her a prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And then I love this sentence. This gives historical um, precedence and it gives history to the whole thing. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Can you imagine what that would be like? You're living amongst two million people that all have the same nose. (laughs) They all have the same color skin. They all look the same. They've been marrying only Jews for their existence. They've been just living in their own community. And you're the family. The prostitute, the label, you're the family that gets to now live among them. The Jews hate this story. Because what the Jews wanted is they wanted this to be exclusive. Come on, God, you said we're your people, everybody else burns, right? And God goes, no, that's not the long-term plan. That's not the long-term plan, and I'm going to prove it. I'm going to start saving the broken, and you'll see it. Next slide. So Matthew, we're back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. We're skipping back to, to Jesus' story. And Matthew knows this story of Rahab. He knows the story that we've been reading this week. He knows the Jews know it. And Matthew wants to bring up the people that have labels in their life. You know why? Because Matthew has a label. If you know the story of the Bible, what was Matthew's label? Tax collector. Oh, I put that up there, didn't I? I wasn't a very good test. I thought, man, these people are smart. You are. Matthew was a tax collector. And it, one of the worst things you could be during the time of Jesus was a tax collector. These tax collectors would rip people off. They would take a little for themselves. You could go up. There were no really laws about tax collection. So in your house, if the taxes were 20%, he could come into your house and go, hey, taxes. They go, okay, here's my 20%. He go, no, it's 35 today. Like, what? Nobody told me it was 35. Well, I just did. It's 35 if you don't pay me, there's a Roman soldier who can take your head off legally right here. And they go, okay, well, i got to get some change. You know what happens to the last 15%? It goes into Matthew's pocket. He takes it personally, and, and that's okay. The Romans expect that. That's how Matthew makes his money. He takes a little more off the top. People hate tax collectors. Matthew is the worst of the worst when it comes to slime balls and sleaze balls in this time in history. And Jesus walks up to Matthew one day. And if you've been asleep here, I don't blame you. I get a little boring at times. But I want you to wake up for just a second, okay? This is why this is so big. Right now, Matthew writes to the Jews and he goes, all right, I want to put this lady in here because this, she is the story. The story of the Messiah. The Messiah isn't who you think he is. He isn't some king that comes down to earth for the good people. He's not somebody who comes down and weighs the good and bad you do in your life, and he only takes the good. That's the picture we have of heaven, isn't it? The people go in, they go into the pearly gates, whatever those are, and they talk to Peter, and you say, tell me all the good things you've done, and we'll weigh them with all the bad things. That's the picture our community has. Matthew goes, this is not God. This is not what the Messiah looks like. And the Jews start to go, oh, somebody kill this guy, would you? And later they do. But he says, listen to me. I want to tell you about the real Messiah. He came to me. And I have a label, Matthew. And he said, Matthew. And here's the thing. Jesus found Matthew while he was sticking money in his pocket from a hurting family. 
And he says, Matthew, here's what he didn't say. He didn't say, hey, Matthew, whenever you get all that stuff worked out, whenever you quit being such a jerk, come follow me. He didn't say, hey, Matthew, whenever the label gets dropped off of you and when your reputation gets better, when people stop looking at you and calling you a jerk, come find me, come follow me. Here's what he says. He goes, hey, Matthew, take, take your mess, take your sin, take your addiction, take your junk, take your label, and come live the way I want you to live. Come follow me. Come work with me. Come do God's work. The Jews go, God doesn't work that way. And Matthew goes, eh. you guys have been missing it. God wants to be in the lives of those with labels. And here's the thing about it. If you're here today and you have a label, and many of you are going, John, man, if you knew my labels, you know how it comes up? You run into somebody from high school, you know? You run into somebody from high school and you go, oh, my goodness, I know what they're thinking. <laughs> Boy, I wish I could get rid of that. And I, w- and I don't go to, and this is why people don't go to their class reunions, because they have too many labels they're trying to leave behind. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you do. This is what happens. Here's what we tend to think. And maybe if you're, a, if you're not a religious person and you're here today, you come and somebody's drug you in, you've, you think this way too, that what God wants you to do is get rid of all your labels, get rid of that smoker label, get rid of that drunky label, get rid of that addict label, get rid of whatever that label is. You get rid of that, you get that fixed, and then you come to Jesus, right? No! It doesn't work that way. It never has worked that way. The spies didn't go, you know what, Rob, you can, you can work with us. God says you can work with us. But first you've got to give up this whole thing. And then give it three or four weeks, go through some rehab, Rohab. And then we'll figure this out. All right, God wants you as you are. And accepts you as you are. This is the message. I've made a list of some labels. Carrie the coveter. Larry the luster. Cherry the cheater. James the jerk, Adam the attic, Faith the unfaithful. I don't know. We could keep going. I want you to know whatever label you have today, whatever it is, the tendency of human nature from the very beginning of time is to go that what God wants for me, what the creator of the universe wants for me is to fix myself. And once I'm fixed, once I have no label, once I got it all worked out, then I can go to him and he will accept me. And here's what God knows. It ain't gonna happen. Ever. And that's not his order. Band, you guys can come up. I've got a long time today. But I want you to know this about this story, about the story of Rohab. Now, you're, you may have read this book this week, and somebody said, I can't imagine what you're going to preach this week. Because <laughs> there's so many things in the book, in the, in the chapter, that are kind of crazy and weird, and I skipped over some things. So you need to go back and read it. But I absolutely love the story of Rohab. I think it's one of the first times in the whole Bible where we see God take somebody with labels. We see God who takes somebody who is broken. We see a character change. We see a switch, a twist in the story where God reaches the broken. Here's the thing about God's grace and God's holiness. God's holiness will never outshadow His grace. Your relationship with God starts with your old label on And I'd like you to know today that God wants you to embrace your new label. If I had one, I think I preached a sermon like this. I just remembered it just not that long ago. I'd stick it right here on my chest. Forgiven. That's your label. Broken, maybe. Still paying for the consequences. 
forgiven. I'm going to give you an opportunity this Christmas to, to celebrate something other than lights, candles, to celebrate forgiveness. And many of you here today are going through a whole bunch of stuff, and, and maybe this disaster in Connecticut has brought it up in your mind, and you've been a, a little bit soft in the heart this week looking for perspective. I want to let you know that right here, right now is the time. We aren't promised tomorrow. I prayed backstage with the band just a little bit ago. God, we take another breath this morning because you say okay. My grandma fell this week um, leaving our house. She could run a half marathon last week. She's the most energetic, fantastic lady. She was walking down our driveway. Risha walked to one side of the car. My grandmother walked, we call her mom mom, walked in front of the car and collapsed. Hit her face on the concrete scraped up her whole side of her face, lost 30 minutes of her life, can't remember a thing of it. We're not sure whether she had a stroke. We're not sure something's going on with my grandma. And you look at me and go, John, she's 82 years old, yeah. But there's this thing that sometimes we just feel like it's, well, I'll wait till next week, you know. I, I drove her to the hospital and I thought, I, I gotta say all the things. <laughs> I gotta do all the things. Mom, Mom, you wouldn't believe the way you changed me and I never even told you. And I'm glad I didn't because she can't remember anything anyway. But I'm telling you what you already know. I'm just reminding you. We don't know if 3 o'clock will come today. Maybe the Mayans were right. Probably not. If God wants to take us on the 21st, he'll take us on his terms. But we're not promised tomorrow. And I want you to know, if you're sitting in a pew, and many of you are, and you're probably thinking I'm talking right to you this morning, and I may be because I know you. You've just been sitting on this thing. You've been trying to decide if you want to make a decision. Don't wait because there may be no 3 o'clock today. I'm going back to that corner. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love for you to be able to say this to God. In fact, I want to do this together, and you can keep tinkling on the keys over there if you want. But I want to pray together, and I'm going to have you say this. Um, you can say it to yourself. You don't have to say it out loud, but I'd like to pray together this morning. And, um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and you can just kind of pray in your head um, right after me. And then I'm going to go back to that corner and we'll sing together. God, we're broken. And God, there are many of us in this room today who have been on the fence with how we want to live our lives, with who we want to be. God, would you help us get rid of the labels in our lives? Would you help us trust you for the grace and the peace that we need for our lives. And right now, God, would you lead us to that today? Those in this room who are on the fence, who are wondering or wavering or planning on later, God, would you move us today? Would you speak to our hearts? In your son's name we pray. Amen. Can you stand with us, please? <clears throat>